Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content, but their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at behindthenife.org. Applications are due February 13th. Welcome to Behind the Knife Trauma Edition. This is our team's sixth podcast, and we are excited to continue to share our expertise in trauma with you. My name is Marcy Feynman, and I am a trauma and acute care surgeon in Baltimore, Maryland, as well as the General Surgery Residency Program Director at Sinai Hospital. I am joined by Dr. David Sigmund, PGY5 at University of Illinois at Chicago and Education Guru, as well as Dr. Elliot Howe, trauma surgeon extraordinaire from Johns Hopkins, past president of EAST, and current editor-in-chief of Trauma Surgery and Acute Care Open. Together, we will be your hosts in this episode as we discuss the paper titled Association of Whole Blood with Survival Among Patients Presenting with Severe Hemorrhage in U.S. and Canadian Adult Civilian Trauma Centers. This is hot off the press, published in GMA Surgery in January of this year. We are especially excited to discuss this paper as our very own Elliot Hout was one of the co-authors. So thanks for the introduction, Marcy. Uh, I'm really excited to, to talk about this paper. Uh, this paper was done by one of our past trauma fellows uh, during his MPH year at Johns Hopkins. Uh, I run a program for MPH students to work with surgeons on outcomes research projects. And Santo Torres was matched with Joe Sacrin. And this is the product of his year. He used this as his capstone for graduation. And as you can tell, it's a pretty exciting paper published in JAMA Surgery. I think we're going to start with David giving us a little bit of the history of blood transfusion overall. Yeah, I always love history. Uh, and this is an incredibly interesting topic. Um, going to the history of blood transfusion, some of the earliest recorded ones actually come from claims by the Spanish conquistadors from the 1500s that uh, there were people in the Incan Empire that could perform blood transfusions. While the documentation from that time isn't exactly clear on how the transfusions were performed, uh, the fact that there was actually a high prevalence of type O blood among the citizens of the Incan Empire lends some credence uh, that that might be true. 
in England and France in the mid 1600s, however, there was a lot of experimentation in transfusing blood from animals to one another, dogs, sheep, cows, and the like, uh, which eventually led to experiments in transfusing bloods from humans to animals. While a lot of these experiments were reported as successful, there's probably a very, very small amount of blood that was being transfused. Um, and it was actually not being really done for hematologic purposes, but to say you transfuse the, the blood of a cow, a calm animal into an angry person, it was really almost more for psychiatric issues. It was very controversial at the time. Um, and France and Britain ended up banning it. Um, and then the Vatican did as well. And that kind of ended uh, the research into blood transfusions for more than a century. In the mid-1800s, blood transfusion started again, this time in England, uh, and it was for conditions like postpartum hemorrhage and hemophilia. Without the knowledge of blood groups, the results were pretty mixed. Some people did very well, um, and of course, some patients passed away almost immediately. It wasn't until 1901 that Austrian physician Karl Landsteiner discovered blood groups that we now describe as A, B, and O, uh, for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1930. Uh, interestingly enough, a Russian scientist by the name of Jan Jansky discovered the same blood groups uh, six years later, but he named them one through four, and this nomenclature is still used in a lot of Soviet states. Uh, the discovery of these blood groups is what allowed for finally safe blood transfusions. Uh, at that point, it really took off. The first intraoperative blood transfusion was done by George Kreil in Cleveland. Dr. Halstead uh, famously gave a direct blood transfusion to his sister after an episode of postpartum hemorrhage. Um, in World War I, um, blood was initially given just as whole blood, um, almost directly. And this kind of the obviously need for blood acted as a catalyst for research that found adding anticoagulants allowed blood to be stored, thus allowing the invention of blood banks. Uh, and then in 1940, Edwin Cohen invented blood fractionation, which led to the transition from whole blood transfusion to the component style transfusion that we now use today. Yeah, because of, uh, Edwin Cohen, Albumin became available for clinical use, which obviously we still use to this day. And um, did you guys know, this is one of the most interesting things to me, that in 1950, Carl Walter and W.P. Murphy introduced the plastic bag for blood collection, which doesn't sound like the biggest deal in the world. But this allowed the evolution of a collection system capable of safe and easy preparation of multiple blood components from a single unit of whole blood. Before that, they were using glass bottles, and this wasn't possible. In 1953, the refrigerated centrifuge was developed to further expedite component therapy. And then in the 1980s, transfusion medicine became mainstream, with physicians becoming experts in component therapy. And that takes us to closer to where we are today. So, you know, for years and years, we've had component therapy. And then uh, this really changed uh, in the past few decades, uh, basically based on the military practice. So uh, as you know, much is learned when uh, about trauma surgery uh, during times of war. Uh, so much so that the National Academies of Medicine have put out a, a big giant report that you really should learn or, or at least hear a little bit about, uh, about zero preventable deaths. And it's this concept that there should be bi-directional learning from the military to civilian side from the civilian to the military side to improve care both for military casualties as well as for civilians injured in all type of trauma. So I think that's led us to the current state where we are in using blood transfusion in civilian trauma. So in the military, you'd heard we've we had moved all the way to component therapy, but um, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, that there was a push to try to move back. 
and deployed surgeons started using fresh whole blood um, as a resuscitation fluid in injured soldiers. And the data was pretty strong that this was helping save lives. And what has happened since then is there's been a resurgence of the use of whole blood on the civilian side today. And it's certainly not standard of care, and it's certainly not used everywhere, but um, there's more and more research on it. And that's going to be the paper we hear about right now. Um, yeah. So the paper we're discussing today is the association of whole blood with survival among patients presenting with severe hemorrhage in U.S. and Canadian adult civilian trauma centers published in JAMA Surgery um, by Dr. Torres et al. Um, this paper notes that there were significant drawbacks to crystalloid and component blood transfusion and also notes that recent military experience has demonstrated benefits of whole blood transfusion in patients suffering from acute traumatic hemorrhage. From these military results, whole blood transfusion has been gradually gaining traction in the U.S. civilian setting, with about 40 to 70 centers in the U.S. now having whole blood transfusion play some role in their resuscitation protocol. However, there's a lack of data on the results of whole blood transfusion in the civilian setting, and therefore Dr. Torres et al. decided to look into it. They hypothesized that whole blood transfusion, in conjunction with massive transfusion protocol, would be associated with improved survival at both 24 hours and 30 days for the affected patients without an increase in any complications. They designed a retrospective study from the ACS Trauma Quality Improvement Database, looking at patients across a two-year span from the start of 2017 to the end of 2018. Uh, the study included patients over 18 with severe hemorrhage who received massive transfusion protocol within 24 hours of the presentation to the hospital. Uh, massive transfusion protocol was defined as a one-to-one -one ratio of red blood cells, plasma, and platelets after getting at least four units of red blood cells within an hour of presentation. They defined severe shock as a systolic pressure less than 90, a shock index that is heart rate divided by blood pressure greater than one, or requiring greater than four units of red blood cells in the first hour after presentation. Patients with burns who had hospital transfers or died within one hour of presentation were excluded from the study. They then divided these patients into those who had gotten whole blood along with the massive transfusion and those who had gotten uh, massive transfusion only. Uh, I think important thing to note at the start of this is that the median value for whole blood received was one unit. So after all those criteria, they had about 2,785 patients that met the criteria. 432 fell into the whole blood with massive transfusion protocol pool and 2,353 fell into the massive transfusion protocol alone grouping. The groups were similar in age, with a median age of 38 for both, similar in ethnic and gender breakdown for both groups, and they were also very similar in injury severity score, with the median being 26 uh, for the whole blood group and 27 for the MTP-only group. Uh, they found the MTP group was more likely to undergo surgery for hemorrhage control, with 81% of that group requiring it, while only 75% of the whole blood group um, ended up requiring surgery for hemorrhage control, and the p-value for that difference was 0 0.004. Uh, I think most importantly, they found a significant improvement in survival with the whole blood group, having a, a 0.72 hazard ratio for death within the first 24 hours and a p-value of 0.49 for that. Um, sorry, 0.049 for that. And this also persisted across 30 days of mortality um, with the hazard ratio for that being 0.74 with a p-value of 0.02. The whole blood group did have a slightly longer hospital stay by about 1.7 days, but there was no difference in ICU stay between the two groups. Uh, there was also no statistically significant difference in major complications between the two groups. 
Uh, so the summarization of all this data is that the authors conclude that being given whole blood demonstrated a clear survival benefit, both in the immediate phase and also after 30 days. Uh, they did note that further studies are warranted to determine which subgroups might benefit the most from whole blood in conjunction with the massive transfusion protocol. Uh, so a lot of data there, but just to sum it up, it does seem that whole blood transfusion in conjunction with massive transfusion uh, provides a pretty clear survival benefit. Um, and so the question I think now becomes really, how are we going to integrate this into our regular practice? Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Uh, so I'm wondering, Elliot, you know, have you guys started using this at Hopkins yet um, or is it still kind of coming down the pipeline for you? Well, thanks for the question, David. And uh, actually, we have very recently started our whole blood resuscitation program at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Uh, logistically, it took us a little while to get it going, but we are up and running and actively transfusing whole blood. Um, and it's a great question of how does this fit into current practice? You know, when I was a fellow, we didn't really have the idea of damage control resuscitation. Um, and now practice really has changed about how we use components. Way less crystalloid, way more balanced resuscitation with packed red blood cells and other components. The platelets and the plasma are, are absolutely critical. There's even push that those should be the first units of product that we transfuse. And we know that patients do better when there's a standardized approach using a massive transfusion protocol. So there are definitely improvements that have happened over the years before we've gotten to whole blood. Um, you know, I may be a little biased, um, uh, but I will tell you the East Damage Control Resuscitation Guideline is an excellent place to start if you don't know much about this idea of uh, massive transfusion protocol and how we should be doing damage control resuscitation. It's a great place to read about all of the research and is a really good summary of all the things we should be doing as far as damage control resuscitation. One of those pieces specifically is also using labs to help us guide component therapy. Uh, so Marcy, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how we use, what those labs are and how we use them uh, for resuscitation. Um, sure. And also, just as a note, I think we're all probably a little bit biased in talking about this, so don't feel bad, Elliot. But, um, you know, we have our, our normal standard labs that we think about, whether it's hemoglobin, PTT, platelets, fibrinogen, those kinds of things. But um, as everybody who practices trauma knows, those are probably the least helpful because they take entirely too long to come back and they can't help you guide any kind of resuscitation. Hopefully we can all agree that Rotem and TEG were monumental developments in guiding the resuscitation of the trauma patient. 
Uh, when TEG was becoming mainstream, there was a pro-con debate on the topic at the Point-Counterpoint Trauma Conference in Baltimore, uh, which happens every spring or summer for anyone's listening who wants to go, um, and the discussion of which was written up by Isaac Howley and T. Seiko in 2018. I am personally convinced by the pro-argument, but feel free to read it and decide for yourself. But these strategies allow for rapid decision-making and directed component therapy. However, even though the results can come back quickly, it still takes about 15 minutes to get results from the fastest point-of-care machine. <clears throat> so with our acutely bleeding trauma patients who just hit the door of the trauma bay, 15 minutes is still potentially too long, hence the current use of massive transfusion protocols until patients are more stable. So whether using a massive transfusion protocol or whole blood for initial resuscitation, TEG can then greatly assist with conservation of blood products by allowing us to practice more targeted resuscitation once our patients have stabilized. I think in the current era of ongoing blood shortages, this is essential. And it's not only blood and blood components. Um, there are some pharmacologic agents that have been developed to help with hemostasis as well. David, do you have anything specific that you guys either use at your shop or have added to your massive transfusion protocols? Sure. So, you know, it seems like they're coming out with uh, new things all the time. Um, you know, you can start with the most, ba most basic stuff. Something as simple as uh, calcium supplementation is obviously a key thing for someone getting transfused a lot of blood. Obviously, things like uh, concentrated factor seven or prothrombin com complex concentrate uh, are also key. Uh, but I think one of the bigger ones um, that we really use all the time is TXA or transagamic acid. Um, just for people who aren't familiar listening, this is a synthetic analog of lysine that stops plasminogen from being converted to plasmin and therefore reduces clot degradation. Um, and that's, you know, something that we use all the time has become a really important adjunct. Uh, the STAMP trial came out on TXA and JAMA surgery in 2021 and found a mortality benefit to TXA, um, but only when it was administered within the first hour of injury. Sorry, uh, first hour of injury. Um, and when they compared that, they found that it uh, reduced 30-day uh, mortality from 7.6% to people that didn't get it to 4.6. Um, and this was really only in patients with severe shock that we saw this benefit. Uh, our paper that we're talking about today actually talks about how they were not able to get data on whether or not uh, patients were administered TXA uh, and if it was administered within that appropriate first hour. And that's something that I think they, they hope can be followed up on in subgroup analysis. Um, Given all this, you know, given that this is supposed to be given in that first hour, I think it kind of raises the question of can pre-hospital treatment really play a role um, in any of this? And, and I think that's the critically important question. You know, once they hit the door, they might have been bleeding for an hour or two hours or three hours. It depends how far away they're coming from. And the real question is, what should we be using or what can be used in the pre-hospital setting as far as blood resuscitation. Marcy, um, you want to maybe go through some of the studies and tell us a little bit about uh, what's out there? Yeah, I mean, let's not forget that there are some critically injured patients who may have blood products started in the field. Uh, I think it's really important to remember too, though, that not all pre-hospital locations are created equal, right? Elliot, where you and I are, there's a major trauma center within like three minutes of most places, right? Uh, but that's not the norm for the country. And so plasma specifically is a big product of interest these days. The PAMPER trial looked at pre-hospital administration of plasma and found lower 30-day mortality and lower med uh, median PTT than standard care in patients at risk for hemorrhagic shock. 
However, the combat trial, another major study looking specifically at urban trauma patients, did not find a survival benefit with pre-hospital plasma. So while plasma may have more benefit in longer transport times, this area continues to be investigated. In 2021, a study specifically looking at pre-hospital whole blood showed a reduction in early mortality. Um, And with increasing focus on whole blood as a resuscitative fluid, I would not be surprised to see more papers looking at the pre-hospital administration of whole blood soon. And, you know, when I was when I was looking at several of these papers talking about uh, whole blood and the civilian experience and the military experience, I found it interesting um, that some people didn't just say whole blood. They made a point of almost highlighting the word fresh whole blood. Um, so they were kind of pointing out there might be a difference between the whole blood we're talking about uh, and the kind that might be talked about uh, in the military papers. Uh, Elliot, I was wondering if you could maybe kind of elaborate on on what you've seen in that difference. Sure. So just a reminder, uh, I'm not in the military, but I certainly have a lot of friends who are, and I certainly have read a lot of this literature. Um, and especially over the years that this has been used more recently in the in theater by military surgeons, this really is whole fresh blood. Um, they have what's called a walking blood bank. And, you know, they have a uh, casualty who would come in and, you know, you they would know their blood type and they would go and find someone available immediately who's an O positive donor or whatever. And they come in, they give the fresh whole blood and literally transfuse it. It's still potentially warm right into the patient. Um, And this is very different than the whole blood we're using in the civilian setting. Um, You know, in the civilian setting, this is uh, blood blood that's donated, it's tested, and it's on the shelf and it can sit uh, for a while. It, it has a two-week, uh, 14-day half li- or shelf life. So it is not the same as warm, fresh, whole blood. So I think it is really important as people start to study this and explain it, you know, are those two things the same? Probably not. Um, we certainly are going to have a tough time trying to compare them directly one-to-one. Um, but I think just knowing the difference between them and which studies are using which type of blood is going to be really important as we decide what we're going to be using. But Elliot, you know, we talked about a ton during the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes, even not just the initial paper we were supposed to talk about, but of course we branched out and talked about pre-hospital stuff and pharmacology and components. So since you were like the most integrally involved of the three of us um, in our initial paper, what are your final thoughts? What do we do with it? What's next? So I think the first thing to realize is that whole blood is promising. I think it is here to stay. Um, I think we're going to be using it more and more and more. And the reasons we got away from whole blood many years ago in favor of component therapy might be good for certain patient populations. But I personally think in the patients with trauma and hemorrhagic shock, going back to the fact that the patients are bleeding whole blood and therefore we should resuscitate with whole blood, that general concept I think is what's driving a lot of trauma surgeons researching this concept in the field right now. So that's the first general idea is we're going to be using it more and more. Um, Like I said, it took us a little while to get it at Johns Hopkins, but we have it now. Um, The state of Maryland has one standardized uh, helicopter system uh, for pre-hospital trauma care. And very shortly, we should have whole blood 
on our helicopters uh, in the state of Maryland. This has been uh, studied before and it's been published, um, but I'm really excited for uh, for us to take this on as a state. Uh, and it's certainly not for every single patient, for, but for those patients in hemorrhagic shock where we think the whole blood is beneficial, getting it to them at the point of injury or much more quickly uh, is hopefully going to be beneficial. So I think this idea of using whole blood more, using it earlier, using it more frequently. And I think the logistics are really real real issues to try to overcome. We're at a center that uh, transfuses a lot of patients. We have a high volume and a high enough volume of people that are pretty sick and need tr- blood transfusion. I don't know what's going to happen at smaller, less busier, you know, level three, three trauma centers, as an example. If you're a more rural level three trauma center that might need to use this once or twice a month, it's a very different setting of, you know, what are the logistics of having a cooler, having a fridge, having it in the emergency department when you really need it versus a trauma center like mine, where we're going to be using it, you know, a couple of times a week or place other places that might be using it almost every day. So I think the logistics of this are really important. And I think that's something to take away just in general for trauma. Yes, we learn many things that can help individual patients, but the way to make that happen is to put it into a system so it's ready to go and we're able to use it. So overall, I think you're going to be hearing more and more about it. You're going to be, if you don't have it yet at your busy urban level one trauma centers, you're going to have it soon. Um, And I think as that happens, we're going to have more and more people experienced in the use of whole blood. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited that we got to talk about one of your papers on this podcast. We covered a ton of ground today. Uh, For even more information, please check out our show notes and references. Thank you for listening to our content for the past two years. And don't forget to go out and dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 